Good to be back. Great to be uh, back with you guys. I've been away this week meeting with uh, leaders of churches who are overseeing churches across the world. So it was a really, really fun time. Um, met some phenomenal people, one of whom was uh, uh, Pastor Eddie and his wife Rose. And they lead a church in Jakarta in Indonesia. And so they and their church send their greetings to you. So hello from Pastor Eddie and Rose. And um, Indonesia, if you don't know, is the fourth, I didn't know this, it's the fourth biggest population on the planet, 250 million people. And it's also the largest Muslim nation, Muslim majority nation in the world. So far, in fact, the population of Muslims in Indonesia is more than all of the Middle East put together. There are more Muslims in Indonesia than the entire of the Middle East. It is that uh, uh, significant in terms of Muslim population. And they're the the persecution is horrific. He was sharing stories and showing pictures. He estimates that between 1,000 and 2,000 churches have been burned to the ground in the last 10 years. The, the, there are gangs of jihadi warriors, 5,000 strong, who will just ro roam up at your church, like this morning, armed with machetes and machine guns, and will just decimate the entire church, raise the church to the ground. I mean, he showed the photos. It is just horrific what's going on. In the midst of in Indonesia right now, the persecution is so thick and intense. It's just story after story of just nightmare conditions. And yet at the same time, there is a massive move of God. I think it's the biggest revival that's going on on the planet right now from the stuff that I have heard. There, we, he showed us this video produced by a Muslim uh, group uh, which is uh, uh, to raise support for jihadi warriors. It, it, it re produced this video, and on the video it says, we estimate that there are now 5,000 people becoming Christians a day in Indonesia. A day. Two, two million Christians a year. This video is saying, and they're trying to raise money to, to support more warriors to go out and burn more churches. Two million Christians a year are, are coming to faith. Too many people are coming, two million uh, people are coming to faith in Christ a year. Did I tell you how, par how big Pastor Eddie's church, when he sent his greetings, his church is 25, excuse me, 25,000 people. He started uh, 20 years ago with four of them, he, his wife, and two others. It's now 25,000 people, and they send their greetings to us from the middle of Indonesia in the midst of the most intense persecution, and they're seeing a revival unlike anything I think else that's going on, on the planet. So that is seriously encouraging. The, the, the video says, at the end of this video, he showed us, again, produced by the Muslims, it said, if we don't stop this, Indonesia will be a Christian majority nation by 2050. That's their concern. So we're like, amen, we'll have that. Grace of God. We were talking, he was talking about goals. He says, my goal, he says, that, that Jakarta will be 50% believers by, 2000, by 2020. So that's my goal. We're about 25% now. My goal is that we'll be 50%. Like, that's, a, that's a good goal right there. First city of 13 million people. He'll have more Christians than any other city on the, on the, on the planet if he sees that. It's just, oh, awesome. He, it, we were talking about the fact that he's got a small church because his church is only 25,000. Uh, his friend's church is 300,000 people. I mean, it's just phenomenal. So thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Well, we are in the midst of a series on worship. We've called it The Key. God spoke to us that there's something for us as a community about worship. I feel like this is a, a worldwide message. God is restoring a fresh expression of worship to his church. And uh, the Lord spoke to us about the life of David. And so we're focused uh, on the life of David. You know, when I travel, there is a real cost 
as a cost to my family, to my kids. I have to say, having watched this stuff from Indonesia, I kind of put it in perspective a little bit. Um, but there is a cost. The kids find it really hard. There's something about a father's presence in the family that just does something. I mean, both parents are important, but there's something about a dad's presence in the family. You know, I bring comfort to my kids when they've had a hard day at school. I bring that sense of, uh, of courage when things are tough and they've got things to face the next day. I bring uh, uh, gifts and resource when I come home. You know, I have to count watch on my watch to see how long it takes them to say, you bring anything for us? You know, <laughs> you can see they're holding it in, trying to be, oh, nice, Dad, it's good to have you back. Yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> have a look in the suitcase. You know, I know what you're really after. But Dad brings presents, doesn't he? He brings gifts. He brings resources. You know, we were made for our Father's presence. We were made for our Father's presence, our Heavenly Father's presence in our life. There's something that we were made for. And we, we, uh, we've seen that the story of life is about uh, us as mankind restore, being restored to our Father's presence, being restored to a connection with our Heavenly Father's presence. There's something uh, that the Lord is doing in our lives and in our day and in our generation of restoring afresh the sense of His presence. You know, some might say, well, isn't, the God, isn't God everywhere? You know, isn't God everywhere? And the reality is, the God who is everywhere wants to turn up somewhere. <laughs> He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He's, all, he's everywhere. And Proverbs 15 says this, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Matthew 28, Jesus says, I am with you always. He is everywhere. But at the same time, the God who's everywhere wants to turn up somewhere. There's something about God's manifest presence that we need to, to learn. John Piper, paraphrasing, says this, while it's true that God is always with us, there's a sense in which God's manifest, conscious, trusted presence is not our constant experience. There are seasons when we become neglectful of the Lord. We give Him no thought. We do not put our trust in Him. and We find Him unmanifested. That's why the Bible repeatedly calls us to seek the Lord, seek His presence continually. It means to seek His manifest presence. I don't know about you, but I want more of God's manifest presence. I want His manifest, His now. He's everywhere, of course, but I want His manifest presence. I want a heart that's inclined to, to draw His presence uh, to, to me. I, I love it. I mean, Caroline um, was sharing to me uh, a few months ago. Though, she was in a, a little Bible study, small group type thing. And one lady was there was just saying, she, oh, she said, I just, I'm so racked with a lack of peace right now. I'm really, really struggling. And so they began to pray for her. And one of the other ladies there said, I've got this word. I don't even know what this word means, but it's this word thula. And the lady who was receiving prayer was like, oh, gosh, she said, when I was a child in the nation that I was brought up in, in that, a native language there, there was a little child's nursery rhyme that I think her nanny or something used to sing, which was about thula, lullaby. It was about thula. And Thula means peace. <laughs> so she said, since then, Caroline, she said, every, every time now I'm racked with anxiety again, I sing that little lullaby that they used to sing over me as a child about the Thula of God, the peace of God that comes over my heart. When God's presence does that. Nothing else does it quite the same. There's, there's, a, there's examples of whole communities being changed by the presence of God. I'm sure you're familiar with Al Malonga in Guatemala. Uh, have you been there on holiday? Yep, yep, very familiar. Well, just to remind you, if you have not been to Al Malonga, Al Malonga in the 90s was a town in Guatemala of 20,000 people 
in a terrible, terrible state. Rampant alcoholism, 36 uh, cantinas or bars selling alcohol. Most of the men were alcoholics. They produced about two or three trucks of goods from their farms a month. They could be, oh, just subsistence living, desperate, desperate state. The two or three churches decided to get together to pray, God, we need you. <laughs> we need your manifest presence. They started to see a move of God. One person gave their life to Christ, then another, and then something snowballed. And now, of the 36, of the 36 cantinas, 30 have closed. There are now only six left. Of the 30 that closed, most of those are now churches. There are now over 30 churches, and a revival began in that city, in that, in that town of 20,000 people, such that now, I was reading just this morning, they estimate that 90% of the people there are spirit-filled Christians who are giving their lives to Christ. Not only that, the husbands have turned around. They're no longer alcoholics. They're good uh, living and uh, uh, um, leading their families well. And the productivity, instead of two or three a month, I think it's now 30 or 40 trucks a month go out of there, resourcing that whole town. The whole town has changed around through the presence of God. I'm, I'm asking for more of that. Do we want our communities changed? Do we want our families changed? Do we want our schools changed? It's about the manifest presence of God. There's nothing quite like it. So as we continue the story of David, whether you're a new Christian here or whether you're not yet a Christian here or whether you've been a Christian for years, there's something we can learn about the presence of God that, that, will change, that changes everything that comes out of this story. So let's just read it uh, for a moment. It's not up on the screen. Let me read it to you. 1, uh, 1 Chronicles 13. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and hundreds and with every leader. David was a shepherd boy. He'd become king, okay? So he, he was uh, in, uh, out of uh, uh, just living a normal life and God picked him out and called him to be king. So he's now become the king. The old king was a bit of a nightmare. David's now come in to lead the nation. This is one of the first things he does. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord of our God, let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in the lands of Israel as well as to the priests, that they may be gathered to us, and let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. In David's time, there was a representation of the presence of God, which was called the ark, the ark of the covenant. Have you seen Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark? You know what I'm talking about. The Ark of the Covenant, that's a photo I took earlier. No, it's not actually. No one knows what it looks like, but we think from the biblical description, it looks a, bit, a little bit like that. This golden box, about three and a half to four feet long, two and a half feet by two and a half feet, with these angels over the top of it with, with wings. It had, a, 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 um, you can't see it clearly on that picture, but loops at the bottom where, the, oh, yes, you can, in the middle, there loops where you see the poles went through because no one was to touch the Ark. It was a sacred object, and when they carried it, they had to carry it with these poles on the shoulders of the priests, which will be important as you see. And so by David's time though, the ark had been lost. I haven't got time to tell you the whole story, but the ark had been lost. And the first thing that David does is says this, we've got to have the ark back at the centre. We've got to have the manifest presence of God right back at the centre of what we're doing. We've got to have it here. It's the first thing that he does. And I guess that's the first thing we can learn from this, is that David was a man. He, he, made, he has lots of flaws, lots of faults, some of which we'll see in this story. But the thing that he got right was this. He knew he had to have the presence of God back in his life. 
He knew he had the presence, he had to have the presence of God front and center of their community life. The manifest glory of God had to be there, and he was passionate about it. Saul, the previous king, wasn't really bothered that the ark was somewhere else. David's like, no, we've got to have his manifest presence here. We've got to have it right here. And, and you know, during the day, the sun is out, isn't it? You, you notice that? The sun is out. Sometimes, I know it's England. So it, it is out, trust me. The sun is actually out. But, but often, you know, we're aware of it kind of in our subconscious. But that's how we see. But, but you notice, if you ever go on holiday in England, Caroline and I are like this. When the sun comes out... <laughs> You're like, quick, kids, let's get to the beach now. No, we'll go in a minute. We will go now. Because <laughs> it might not be there that long. But, <laughs> but that's the reality, isn't it? When the sun is out and you're laying on the grass and you've got that kind of heat, the sun is out. <laughs> the sun is out all the time, but then the sun is out. That's what we're talking about here. It's that sense of the manifest. The God is everywhere, but that manifest, focused weight of God. And David's like, I've got to have that. And the reality is, we've got to be a people like that. We will not settle for anything less than His glory increasing and manifest in our lives, in our homes, in our businesses. You know, any area where you have any sense of authority or weight or ownership, stop everything until you're sure you've got the manifest presence of God there. In your school, you know, if you're at school, have you prayed, God, I want to see your manifest glory. I want to see your presence in your workplace. Have you prayed, God, I want to see you breaking out here. I want to see in your home. Have you prayed around your home? Say, God, I want your manifest presence because there's nothing quite like it. His power comes when his presence comes. One of our families in the church, they've been praying for people particularly to be healed of neck conditions. They had a, a lady walk through the doors of the house and was instantly healed of a neck condition because their house has become steeped in something of the essence of God's presence that brings that. His joy comes with his presence. David says it in Psalm 16. You may make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. <laughs> your circumstances might not change, but when his presence comes, you can have joy. You can have joy. If, if you're living in a joyless place, seek him like David did. Seek him. Say, God, I want the joy of God. I want the manifest joy of God back in our lives. He's, he doesn't promise that our circumstances will change necessarily immediately. What he promises is right in his presence we can have joy. That's why Paul in a stinking Philippine prison is able to worship God with joy <laughs> because it's about his glory and his presence. You get revelation which comes from his presence. David says, you make known to me the path of life. When his presence comes, there's a, revel there's a revelation gets opened, a revelatory realm that gets opened that, that defies human wisdom. A friend of mine was telling me he, he and his uh, oldest daughter, she was moving, she had to move to a new school, and so they had to put down on the list six schools in, in order. And he said his daughter really had never had much of a prayer life before. She prayed a little bit, but suddenly she really, I think, understood the gravity of this moment. And, and, thought, and she decided to pray, and she was praying for wisdom, for which God. Anyway, she got the name of the school. She felt the, right, the school she really wanted to go to, she put that first. Four others, which she thought, and then they couldn't even come up with a sixth. So they just had to look around, and he's like, well, why don't we put this one down? So they put the sixth school down. Anyway, they, she prayed right the way through to the, the, the thing came through the post of what school. She'd been given the sixth school on the list. And he was like, no, 
God, are you serious? This is the first time she's seriously prayed about anything in her life. And you've not given her number two, three, four, five. You've given her number six. The one that she didn't even really care about. You've given her that score. And because she was devastated. And questions, does God hear prayers? All of this stuff. Anyway, so this was, I don't know, April, May time. She prays, her, they pray as a family right the way through the summer. God, give us a reserve place, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Gets to September, she's got to go. So she goes to the sixth place school. She gets to the sixth place. Anyway, when she gets there, she loves it. She makes great friends. She's right in the hub of stuff. He thinks, oh, phew. Day three, they get a letter through the post from the first place school. We've got a place for your daughter. He's like, oh, no. I mean, what do you do? Now she loves this school and who would take her out to an unknown school? But we've been praying all summer, give us a place and now we've got a place. So his daughter took one look at the letter and said, Dad, this decision is too life-defining and too big for me. I'm not going to make it. And, go, and walks off. <laughs> With him holding a letter, I'm going to bed. He's got 24, they've got 24 hours to make a decision. He turns to his wife and she says, it's too big for me as well. You've got to make it. <laughs> so she goes to bed as well. So there he is with a letter with his daughter's future in his hands and says, okay, Lord, if I'm up all night, I've got to hear from you. <laughs> okay, how long this takes? You have got to speak to me. This decision is too big for me as well. What do you do? He said, he just began to worship. Presence of God comes. He said, within a moment, he had the answer. He said, I was there less than an hour. I had the answer. God spoke to me, he said. God says, son, your daughter's at the right school but I wanted her to know that I always hear your prayers. I mean, that is the wisdom of Solomon right there, isn't it? I mean, who can come up with... He said, I knew. He said, there was no way I was going to come up with that answer. I knew that God had spoken. And I went to bed. It was great. <laughs> when God's presence comes, we get his wisdom. So that's the first thing is we've got to be a people who are like, God, we, we want to see your manifest presence. There's nothing quite like that. Presence. And let's just read on in the story though. They carried the ark of God on a new cart. And from the house of Abinadab and, uh, and Uzzah and Aho were driving the, the cart. And David and all of Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, with song and lyres and harps and tambourines, cymbals and trumpets. And Olivier was there on his keyboard <laughs> on, a, on a wheelie thing. He was there as well, I'm sure, loving it. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen who were pulling the cart had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down there because he put out his hand onto the ark, and he died there before God. And the person hosting the meeting had no clue what to do. <laughs> it was like a living nightmare. And Phil Wilthew thought to himself, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah and killed him. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God. And he said, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark of home to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, who said, thanks very much. He didn't really, I made that bit up. But I think that's what he thought. <laughs> thanks a lot, David. Seriously, the king comes with this 
package. Here, can you look after this? Oh, by the way, it killed the last guy who touched it. Oh, thanks a lot. And the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom, and he was really, really careful for three months. But the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. Some people could get, can get offended with God over a passage like this. Many people today would take that, literally, it's happening, you see it on the internet, I was watching someone recently, they're taking their scissors to their Bibles and they are chopping out passages like this. Doesn't fit with their view of God. Does not fit with who God is. This passage, no, we're about the love of God. This loving being. We don't want this bit with Uzzah. I mean, surely it's so unreasonable, isn't it? There's the ark. I mean, he was just trying to help out. Puts his hand on it, steady the cart. Surely, strike him dead. I mean, you know, that just doesn't seem reasonable. What is, and David obviously is in the same place. He's like, who, what, who, what is this going on here? Do you know what? I've learned this. You can either take your scissors to the Word of God or you can allow the Word of God to take its scissors to you. <laughs> you can either take your scissors to the Word of God or you can let the Word of God take its scissors to you. That's what it says, isn't it? It's a, it's a sword that cuts to the heart. Too many Christians today are just chopping out the bits of the Bible they don't like instead of realizing this is the Word of God, that if we will humble ourselves before it, we will learn the ways of the Lord's. And we will learn what He is like and who He is. God said there is one way to carry the ark. There is one way. He didn't say anything about a cart. He didn't say anything about oxen. He said no. There are poles, and it goes on the shoulders of the priest, and no one touches it. See, David hadn't bothered to do his research. He hadn't bothered to do his home. He's so excited about the presence of God, he became over-familiar with God. I tell you, there's a real danger of that this day. There's a real danger. And I hope if you've been part of this church for any length of time, you've heard the full picture of the love of God. <laughs> I hope you've been ravished by the love of God. I hope you came in and got surprised by the uh, phenomenal, life-changing fact that he will reach you no matter how filthy, no matter how messed up, no matter how broken you are, the love of God will reach you and pull you out of that place into his own family. I hope you've got blown away by that message. But I hope you can also hear the fact of the holiness of God, <laughs> that he is a holy perfect, pure, unimaginably holy being, that there is no darkness in him at all, that he never makes a mistake and he never gets anything wrong and he never even says a wrong thing or thinks a wrong thing. His judgments are perfect and pure and always have been and always will be and no one will stand in heaven and shake a fist at God and say, you did the wrong thing. It's never going to happen. He is holy and no one deserves to stand before him on their own two feet. That is our God. And you see... You've got to have an understanding of both of those. <laughs> because if you just have an understanding of the love of God, you end up like Uzzah, <laughs> missing it completely, becoming over-familiar, missing the fact that this God is to be reverenced. If you just have an understanding of the holiness of God, 
you end up like David was. Whoa, who is this? The reality is the ark gives us a picture of both. The ark was a symbol that God was with his people. He's in the midst of his people. He's right there. The, the love of God was symbolized by the ark because many other nations taught a God who was distant, who was unknowable, but the ark showed that God is right with his people, his love, his passion, and yet at the same time, the ark teaches us that he is a holy God, <laughs> that we are not to treat him irreverently and lightly, that we are to hold him at both of these intention. And, and the grace of God... The love of God and the holiness of God are both found in Jesus. The ark is a picture of Jesus who was to come, who would be and hold with himself in the cross both the love of God, for God so loved the world he sent his son, and also the, the holiness of God, that he paid the price that you and I could come before a holy God. Both are found in Jesus. And we see that beginning of that picture in the ark. Because if we, we miss it, if we become over-familiar, and it's a huge concern of mine in the church today, if we become over-familiar, we end up with all sorts of compromise and mess in the church. Instead of being the holy people who stand aside from the world, we end up just like the world. We end up compromised sexually, financially, morally, in any way, and you walk into the church and look at their lives and they look no different to the world around they're doing the same stuff that the world around is doing because there's no sense of awe or respect or holiness for what God has done. I mean, when I was growing up, there was a worship leader, phenomenal worship leader, electric worship leader, was world known until we found out that in every city he visited, he had another woman that he was sleeping with. When it came to light, his ministry was destroyed, and rightly so, because... You can't treat this stuff with anything less than the awe and holiness of God. You know, and so worship, as we will learn from David, is when we come into worship, it's a good place to check our hearts. It's a good place to get before the Lord. Yes, we want to bask in the love of God. That never goes away. But also to come with reverent fear of who He is and say, Lord, will you, will you check me? <laughs> Is this grace? This is, this is grace. Because I can't fix anything. Whatever I see in there cannot be fixed by anyone but Jesus. I can't earn my way out. I'm going to tell you the other day, I was leading a conference with Phil. And as I was praying before him, the Lord reminded me of something that I'd done. And I thought, do you know what? I could just deal with this between me and God. He would forgive me. I would be able to come running into his presence. But this is a big deal that I'm leading this conference. And the Lord has brought it to my mind right now. I'm going to tell Phil about it. So I just went to Phil's office and said, look, I need to talk to you about something. I did this, you know, I've repented, it was wrong. And I just want, I, I told Caroline about it already, but I just wanted to be honest with you, Phil, because we're about to lead this conference together. I want, now, did I need to do that? I don't think I needed to do it, but there's something powerful about confessing sin to one another. It creates a bond, it creates a connection in the people of God that we're all sinners before a holy God and his love has reached us. But there's a, something of reverence about it when we live like this and realize that, and when we come in our worship, that we come offering hearts that are sin-filled sin but covered by the blood of Christ, that have been washed clean by what he has done. But we don't treat that lightly. We treat it with respect. Do you see the tension here between these two? You've got to have both and. We've got to know both and. And I, and I see sometimes in worship, I see some people, their, their heads are in their hands right the way through, and you talk to them, and they, their feeling is, I'm not worthy to be here. I don't, I, my life is a mess. I don't deserve to be. If, listen, 
If that's your experience, I urge you, if you come into worship and you recognize the sin that's in your heart, immediately you can bring it to the Father. And the grace of Christ is enough for you right then. No amount of time will change it. You, you, there's no point waiting for an hour or two for you to feel less guilty. Run into his presence right then. Because his grace is available just right now in the minute after you've realized it and brought it to him as it will be in an hour's time. Why waste time? Come to his presence right then. But I've also seen people and known people who are at the front, the most passionate worship leaders, worship uh, people in the church, and yet at the same time you find out about their lives and they're beating their wives and it's just like, ugh. Guys, we need to be a holy people. But at the same time, we're a people who come covered by his blood. We don't earn this ourselves. It's by his grace. Let's walk this, this line. So let's just read on and we'll finish and land on this. David built houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one but the priests may carry the ark for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark. See, he'd done some homework since the last time. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring the ark of the Lord to its place, which he'd prepared for it. And it goes on to say, and God blessed David and the whole nation of Israel from that point. The blessing that Obed-Edom had known in his house suddenly was available to the whole nation. The reality is this, when the presence of God meets with a holy people, you end up with mass blessing. <laughs> you end up with mass blessing. The, 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 this is the truth that this passage is teaching us. But the other thing is this, David did not bring the ark to Moses' tabernacle. Moses' tab tabernacle had a separate room for the ark. No one could see the ark. It was hidden with inside. No one could even get near this thing. Yet David itself, it, it says, had pitched a tent for the ark, a separate tent for it, tabernacle for it. That's another word for a tent. He'd pitched this separate tent for it. There was no surrounding. In fact, commentators say probably the, the, the sides of it were open so that the ark could be seen. And when they worshipped now, they worshipped around an ark which was exposed for all to see. Why? Why would David do this? I feel like God had, sp God had spoken to him. He'd spoken to him because David was a type of Jesus. He was a, a, a forerunner of what Christ would do. It, when Jesus came, he brought the presence of God into the centre of God's people. No longer separate, right in the centre. And so when we come in worship, we come and meet with the presence of God. Feel free to get happy at any point. And when David came and brought the ark to this place, it says he worshipped God before the, the ark. And, and the reality was David wasn't a priest. Why? Because in, in Jesus' time, we're all priests. We can all come freely into God's presence. Like David did, he was a forerunner of what God was going to do. No longer just a few, but now a whole nation of people. That's why 2 Peter says, you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood that we now carry with us on our shoulders, as it were, the presence of God. We carry the ark of God, God's presence with us everywhere we go. We are, the, we are living with the blessing of God as his people. It lives through us and in us and goes out from us because we are those people who have been called by God to know his presence, for it to meet our holiness in Christ and then it becomes a blessing for the nation and the nations. This is a powerful, powerful truth.
Families get transformed when people understand this. Businesses get transformed. Lives get transformed when the presence of God meets a holy people by the blood of Christ. You know, I was talking with a guy from Zimbabwe. We need to land, but let me just finish with this. He was a, a Zimbabwean who ran a grocery store. And he ran a number of grocery stores, actually, and in the midst of a nation that is r- rife now with corruption, so much corruption. You can barely down, walk down the street without paying a bribe. It is the, particularly running a business there is a nightmare of corruption. And I said to him, how do you run this as a Christian? How do you run a successful business as a Christian? He said, listen, when my dad started this grocery store, it was a small grocery store, and a guy came to him with a truckload of milk. And he said, I took this out of the the factory last night. No one knows it's gone. I'll sell it to you for a quarter of the price. My dad said to him, I will not build my business on this foundation. I, I, I pay my dues. I want to pay the full price to the supplier. I'm not interested in doing business with you. He said, that story became well known around the community such that everyone knew that my dad would never pay a bribe and would never take black market goods. So he said he passed that on to his three sons and now we have built our businesses. We've got, I think they had five or six different stores. They had never, ever paid a bribe in their entire lives. They never had had to. They'd, he said, we've not even, some, he said, our suppliers don't even ask us to anymore because they know that we won't pay it. And yet right the way through the worst time of Zimbabwe when businesses were going bankrupt left, right and centre, they thrived and they prospered. There's something about this that we've got to realise that God wants to bless people. <laughs> but he won't do it on our agenda He would do it on his agenda. Jesus said, there is one way to the Father. The world says, go any way you want to God. Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the world is like Uzzah saying, well, just do this, just do that. doesn't really matter. But we've got to be people who say, no, 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 there is one way to know the blessing of God. There's one way to know the favour of God. There's one way to know the presence of God. It's through Jesus. And we allow him to cover our sinfulness with his holiness. And we will know blessing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Why don't you just stand? We'll stand together. Thank you, Father. There's just some here, just as I was talking, you might not even be a a Christian yet, and you realise that sense of a need of holiness. You've compromised sexually, financially, morally, and it's just time. Even perhaps built a business on it, and it's just time today. I just really feel God on businessmen today. There's more pressure than ever to fit all the books, to do things in a corrupt way, twisted way, even in our nation. It's time. God wants a holy people. He wants to bless businesses that are dedicated to Him. It's time in your family life to to stop hiding things, come out into the light, to talk to a friend, not just to come here on a Sunday and just put a good face on it, but to be honest and say our lives are a bit of a mess. We've compromised. There's some of you here, you're just just burning with this right now and you realise the Lord is speaking to you. Just bring it to Him. Bring it to Him. There is grace and forgiveness. He's called you to be a holy people, a holy nation. Lord God, we pray right now for anyone who's facing that reality. We just say, God, will you come? Pour out your blessing. Pour out your blessing. 
as we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and wash us. I just pray for a pure church. Lord, our worship, let it be a holy worship. Let us lift up holy hands. You cover our mistakes, but we can come to you with holy hands in our worship. Let us Sunday morning, let you see before you our raised holy hands, not by our own effort or by our own strength, but by your grace. Wash us clean. Let there be no stain of sexual immorality in our lives, God. Let us deal with it. Let us get help and support, whatever we need to come free. Before you, God, we want to lift holy hands so that we know your presence and your glory and your blessing, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father.